Please turn your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 6. We'll be reading from chapter 6, verses 1 through 28. Natalie Merchant wrote a one-hit wonder of the 90s titled, Ooh, Jealousy. Can't commend the song to you, but the theme sure does carry true in Daniel chapter 6. Jealousy, my jealousy. Today's title is United in Jealousy, or Jealousy's Conspiracy, either way that you might like to look at it. A little something for the children. Here's a quote I saw, don't let your ice cream melt by counting someone else's sprinkles. Don't let your ice cream melt by counting someone else's sprinkles. Winston Churchill said it a little differently. You'll never reach your destination if you stop and throw stones at every dog that barks. You'll never reach your destination if you stop and throw stones at every dog that barks. We agree that jealousy can be bad. We disagree when some say jealousy can only be bad. You know, he's a jealous boyfriend, he's a jealous student, they're jealous co-workers. We agree in that version of the badness of jealousy, at least in theory, even if we're not always powerful to stop jealous tendencies. But have you thought about the fact that in the economy of God, jealousy can be good? Like jealousy for covenant faithfulness is good. We have our examples. Divine jealousy is good. For God can only be good. Today we contend that jealousy can be good, jealousy can be bad, sinful or spiritual, resenting or guarding. Job says that jealousy slays the simple in chapter 5, verse 2. So jealousy can slay the simple. We can be appropriately jealous for fidelity to our faith covenants of marriage and membership. We can be on the lookout for threats to those covenants. We can offer correctives and comforts, suggestions and counsel as God leads the Bible says God is jealous for his holy name in Ezekiel 39. And we do not want to be the ones that provoke the Lord's jealousy. We don't want to provocate the Lord's jealousy, 1 Corinthians 10.22. For we're not stronger than he is, now are we? So in a word, bad jealousy covets. And in a word, good jealousy covenants. And that will give you kind of a layout of the theme today. Let me tell you a little bit about where we're at in Daniel before we read the text, because the vast expanse of the text in Daniel, particularly the narrative text of chapters 1 through 6, you could get, the theme could get lost on you. So let's just kind of narrate what's going on in 6 in light of what's around it. Now, Daniel refuses to treat, to treat the Babylonian and now the Persian king as God's chief representative, let alone his deity. And Daniel, though, even though in spite of the fact that he won't treat the king that way, he's promoted in both empires. In chapter 6, we see administrators or other officials, colleagues of Daniel, plotting to remove him. But we see in this chapter that God, in fact, after some, some tension and climax, we see that God preserves Daniel in the lion's den. King Darius acknowledges the power of Daniel's God in the end, but that doesn't really strip away the tension of the entire chapter. In fact, we don't even find out until the last third of the chapter that Daniel, in fact, gets preserved. So we need to read this as if we're a first-time reader going through it and wondering, what's going to happen to Daniel? Is he, in fact, going to suffer and die for his faith? Is, that, is he going to be a martyr? Is that what's going to happen? 
You can see the flow of the story as we read it in just a moment by following the 15 times that your word then shows up. T-H-E-N. Then, 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 then. You'll see it come up 15 times if I counted correctly. You can count and check it. If I'm wrong, I'll be impressed by your diligence. Within this story, you're going to see the officials entice the king by his pride. King Daniel's duped by their cunning. We see that Daniel's the one that never changes his ways throughout all, staying with his prayer practices, his faithfulness to God. We see in the end, God is triumphant, him as rescuing his people. We see chapter 6 as looking a whole lot like chapter 3 in its theme. If you consider Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the way that they were delivered from the fiery furnace, we see a similar theme here. And those three said, I don't know if God will save me from the furnace or not, but what I do know is I'm not worshiping you, king. I'm not bowing to that golden image. I'm not doing it. And so Daniel takes a similar, similar posture in chapter 6 as a servant of living God, and we find out if God is able to deliver him from the den of lions, assuredly a death trap, as he's sealed with a stone and a signet so that the king would let no one in until daybreak. And we find themes that flow through the gospel throughout the Bible. I want you to listen for three things as I read today's text. I want you to listen in the first nine verses for the sinful jealousy in the kingdom of man. In just the first nine verses, just listen for the theme or the, the sub-theme of the sinful jealousy in the kingdom of man. And then in the next verses, 10 through 17, I want you to listen for spiritual example in the kingdom of God. Admittedly, Daniel is set apart, set aside as a, an example, a spiritual example. And then in verses 18 to 27, look at the theme of divine jealousy for the care of his people, how God is jealous for his people, he cares for his people sort of creating a beginning, before and after for bad and good jealousy. So again, listen for sinful jealousy in the kingdom of man in the first nine verses. Then beginning in verse 10, listen for a spiritual example within the kingdom of God operating here. And then divine jealousy beginning in verse 18 for the care of God's people. Pay special attention not only to the word then as we read, but to set this up with one more phrase, look for the three-time usage of came by agreement. You'll see came by agreement in verses 6, 11, and 15, and that's critical as well with the rising tension and climax. They wonder as you read, you wonder as you read, they would have wondered as they heard, the first audience would have wondered, will Daniel escape from this lion's den? So without further ado, let us listen to and interact with mentally the words of Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." 
Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing may be changed concerning Daniel. Now in verse 18. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now some commentators, if we could pause right there, may God bless the reading of his word and minister grace unto the hearers. There are different interpretations of the consecutiveness of reigns. I'm taking the position here that during the reign of King Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That is the same person in this particular instance. So this king, Darius, as he's called in chapter 6, we won't get sidetracked with that, simply to say 
he issues a decree that's recorded in verses 25 to 27 that's very much like the kingly decrees issued before in Daniel. You may recall them. The end of Daniel chapter 4 and the beginning of Daniel chapter 4 has decrees about the greatness of God. So it's a public proclamation about God at the end of this story. But that doesn't carry the narrative of the story. It's almost a poetic injunction. It's a, a sense of a song at the end. If you look at your print Bible, the text of, of verses 25 to 27 is probably offset a little to indicate that it's supposed to have a little different hue, a little different emphasis. It's actually articulating the melody line of the entire book of Daniel. That is God's everlasting kingdom. So it's there for a reason. It's a good reminder for us, but it doesn't get us into the warp of woof of this narrative in particular. So let's consider verses 1 through 24 for that. And as I said, we're firstly going to consider how, how sinful jealousy in the kingdom of man is a problem in the kingdom of man. We're going to consider how we must be rescued from that. We should not mirror that. So sinful jealousy in the kingdom of man in verses 1 to 9. We're going to see here how Daniel was distinguished. He's a distinguished individual. And how they're jealous about that, and they want to bring him down, and they even make official policy to try to bring him down. Documentable policy. So consider the distinguishment of Daniel. Daniel's old now. If he came to Babylon, which is now Medo-Persia, at 15 years old or so, he's now maybe 85 years old. He's, he's an old man. He's an elder statesman. He's a survivor. He's also a foreigner. They call him this. They say this is an exile from Judah. Many commentators consider this a bit of a racial slur. They're, they're impugning him because he doesn't look like them, doesn't come from the heritage that they come from. Daniel is diverse. He was birthed into an Assyrian-dominated society. He has served most of his life in a Babylonian-dominated society. And now, as the Persians rule, he's under their administration. And he has succeeded in each administration. He was seen as talented, thus he was exiled from Judah because they took their best and brightest away when they conquered them. He rose as a wise man in the kingdom that could interpret things for the king in Babylonia. And even as he presided over the downfall of the last king of Babylon, he seems to have ascended quickly in the kingdom of the Medo-Persians, the Medes and the Persians. In case you didn't follow that, Assyria fell to Babylon and Babylon fell to the Persians. And so that is the time frame in the 530s B.C. that we find ourselves in some 70 years after the first wave of deportation of the Judeans to Babylon in about 605 B.C. So here we are in the 530s B.C. Daniel is distinguished. He's a, an, an older man. He has habits that are firmly entrenched, and they're jealous of him, in fact. I wonder why they're jealous of him. I wonder if it's a combination of a bunch of things. I'm sure most of the other officials were younger than him. I wonder if they kind of have a bit of a snobbery toward older folks. Let's get some quick fixes in here. Let's stop listening to this old guy. Quick fixes rarely are, now are they? I wonder if there's a tinge of ethnic snobbery. Daniel didn't look like them, so they could just dismiss him because of his background rather than hearing his arguments and being persuaded by the force of his faith. Daniel survived when these pluralistic religious environments where rulers were deified and idolatrous gods were worshipped. And we shall see it's when man's law directly conflicts with God's law that Daniel rebels. But he doesn't have a rebellious spirit generally. He served these kings well. He's recognized as such. He's promoted as such. He prospers, this text says. I think we can take from here maybe just a simple statement that we should beware of a jealousy against the distinguished. 
There are some folks that are viewed as distinguished, I'm sure, that deserve the suspicion that we give them. But if our baseline is to be, dis- is to be suspicious of every distinguished person in our society, the problem may fall more with us than with them. The truth of the matter is that God allows some to be distinguished, and particularly some to be distinguished because they manage to live their faith in the public square in such a way that they are considered blameless. Beware of sinful jealousy. Trust that it will all come out in the wash. This isn't to not be discerning or not to test. It's just some things are above our pay grades to figure out and fix in this life. We also might say that showing this jealousy is utterly sinful because they could not find a complaint against Daniel. Be careful of jealousy that arises against someone that you don't have a legitimate ground for complaint against. Daniel was faultless. His books were in order. Despite all the opposition research they'd done against him to try to topple him, they couldn't find any skeletons in Daniel's financial closet. Because there was no ground for complaint in the kingdom of man, these jealous colleagues of Daniel had to pit the kingdom of man against the kingdom of God, God's law against man law, and they came by agreement to this. Sinclair Ferguson expresses this sinister nature of their agreement in a very poignant way when he, said, when he writes, all their personal jealousies were suddenly forgotten in their one great jealousy against Daniel. Doubtless all political party spirit was temporarily put aside as they closed ranks against the servant of God. Perhaps they sensed that Daniel's prime minister would put a serious curb on their own sinfulness. It is not just Daniel. Now, we have had a bit of a respite from persecution as Christians in North America, and I'm thankful for that. We ought not be spoiled by it. It's historically a blip on the map. There were ten waves of persecution in Rome, then waves of persecution throughout church history, major persecution in Reformation era. If you think about stories coming from the front, the voice of the martyrs, there are Christians that will be murdered today for their faith. There's an underground church in China. There's persecution against Baptists in Russia and Ukraine. There's regular Muslim militants fighting against Christians in Africa. The idea that even in secular Europe that Christians are welcomed in the so-called public square is it's kind of a farce. Christianity is on the wane in so many countries, in so many places, in so many continents. And what's left of our sort of societal expectation of the Jewish and Christian ethic seems to be on the wane. I pray it is reversed. I pray that we have another opportunity to use this great place that we live as a missions-sending springboard to the world. But we have really fallen on hard times with that focus. Our energy for the gospel going forward here and out there seems to have waned. We've turned in on ourselves in many ways. And I stand at the front of the line of concern for my own comfort instead of for the kind of elucidation of Christian freedom that leads to gospel proclamation in the world. Perhaps we could confess that sin together and get that ship righted this year and next year and the year after. We have great opportunity, but sometimes our sins are not sins of commission, things we do, but they're sins of omission, sins we don't do with what we have. Let us consider these things. Daniel did a lot with what he had. He's an example to us, not the example, but an example. We'll get to that in a moment. One more thing within this first point, this bad kind of jealousy. Booker T. Washington said this. He said, a lie doesn't become truth 
Wrong doesn't become right, and evil doesn't become good just because it's accepted by a majority. We need to take care that our reflective thoughts go deeper than just agreeing with the prevailing winds of worldly wisdom. Daniel did not live to be disagreeable, but there was a principled point by which he would disagree. And I just wonder, where's the principled point for me and for you? This is where witness in the world comes in. Where's the principled point where this far and no further? Where is it for you? Decide these things before the moment happens or you're unlikely to stand on principle when the moment happens. They made bad jealousy official policy. And if we're not checked by God along the way, our jealousy can get the best of us. They were jealous of Daniel's attributes and accomplishments. They were actually united in this, this sinister thing, jealousy. They had a smoke-filled backroom kind of scheming going on that we don't get a lot of details of in this narrative, but it surely happened because they come at what they perceive as their biggest threat, their biggest rival, in a spirit of rivalry, to topple him. Not because Daniel was a real threat. Daniel was not a real threat. He was a real servant. But it was because of covetousness, the bad kind of jealousy. So they create this injunction. They thought through the king's desire. This was very premeditated. The king would want to pull his kingdom together around his leadership. And so after such a vast and swift conquest, this would be an opportunity in a pagan empire to pull together different provinces. So they played to his motives as well as his pride. And Darius is no Yahweh worshiper like Daniel is, and so he doesn't feel these tensions, even though he liked Daniel. And so the, one commentator said that, that they kind of created a 30-day Daniel or Darius Appreciation Month, where Darius would be appreciated for a month. Who wouldn't want a Darius Appreciation Month, right? Who wouldn't want a month to appreciate this person or that person? So they played to his pride, and in fact, it became his downfall. He signed this document ratifying this jealousy conspiracy against Daniel. And it was a document that even extended to the sanctioning of Daniel's private prayer life. It was wicked to the core, but he signed it. And I just wonder today if we might think about where ungodly jealousy has crept in on us, where we found a spirit of agreement with folks that are not operating in the spirit with that bad jealousy. Think about it. An unchristian, I want you to know today, I'm going to speak to you a few times in this message, you cannot pursue the things of God until you first trust God. And so if your, your life is marked by the rat race of societal advancement, you need to trust Christ. Follow the example of Daniel. And that's our second point today, beginning in verse 10 for the theme of it all, although I'm not going to reread it all again. Beginning in verse 10, running down through 17, we see the Bible setting apart, God setting apart in Scripture, Daniel as an example. Really, the whole Bible sees him this way. You'll be hard-pressed to find anything negative said about Daniel in the Scriptures. So he is set up as an example. Though he, he was a sinner, there's only one perfect man ever, and it's not Daniel. Though he was a sinner, his sins are not mentioned. And so he's set up as a sort of foreshadowing for the more thorough obedience of Christ that would come later. And we do well to examine his example for our own Christian living. So Daniel in this case, is an example. How is he an example? Well, one of the ways that he's an example is through his prayer life. Another is through his willingness to take risks. And another one is through his blameless character. So let's just consider these things as Daniel is an example. One of them is he prayed, and he prayed routinely. 
And he prayed for thanksgiving, and he prayed for petition. You know, if we go long enough in this service, we're going to have a prayer of petition and a prayer of thanksgiving before we leave. That's our custom, and it's a good custom. It's a custom Daniel had. Just because it's routine does not mean that it's unhelpful. Just because it's routine does not mean that it shouldn't be done. Just because it's routine doesn't mean that it isn't a means of grace that God uses to bless us. In fact, some routines are quite blessed, and I think that's what we find in Daniel chapter 6, particularly in verse 10. Consider that verse with me especially now. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, when he knew it, he went to his house, and this is a place he'd gone many times before, the windows of his upper chamber, opened toward Jerusalem, where he had been exiled from so many decades ago. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed. And how did he pray? He prayed thanksgiving. Thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And we find in verse 11, if we read on down, they accuse him, probably rightly, of praying petition. Daniel made petition. He prays petitions. God, help me, help me, please help me, please help me, please help me. That's a pastoral prayer we offer each Sunday is prayer of petition, prayer of thanksgiving. Thank you for this. Help us with that. Thank you for this. Help us with that. Thank you for this. Help us with that. That's a, a great way of thinking about prayer. It's two ways that I believe God wants us to pray. Daniel has this routine. He has this habit of getting down on his knees. And we know one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the Lord, right? He got on his knees three times a day, and he looked toward Jerusalem, toward the place where God had dwelt with man, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. Now, this practice is not mandated anywhere in Scripture, unless perhaps Psalm 55 gets at it. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. So perhaps around the eating clock, so we should pray, and we should pray meaningfully. Maybe there's something there that the Psalter gives us. But it may not quite be such a formula for us as it might well have been for Daniel. You see, King Solomon, and it's written about in 1 Kings, spoke about when God's people would rebel and would be away that they should face Jerusalem and pray three times a day. Again, looking toward a kind of hope. Daniel is looking to God, his hope, seven decades into his exile. Daniel is an example for us in prayer, and he doesn't modify his regular habit of prayer because of the risk. Daniel proceeded knowing the risk that was before him. It says in, in verse 10, I think rather helpfully, when Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house. Uh, there's no angling here. There's no trying to figure out a way that he can get out of consequences. He realizes full well that he's signing his own death sentence lest God intervene, and he faces it anyway. He's an example in this way. He proceeded knowing the risk. Note that the king was duped, but he was also weak. He doesn't want to overturn a law and be shamed based on the customs of the Medes and the Persians, even though the law was completely unjust and not thought through by the king or his so-called officials, 122 of them stacked up against one. The law sought to bind the consciences of believers in the one true God, so the king worked all day trying to save Daniel, exhausting himself trying to save Daniel. And then he stays up all night avoiding food and entertainment. If he lived today, he wouldn't have turned on his television or looked at his device. He wouldn't have eaten dinner or had a snack, all in hopes that the king of the universe would do what he, as a Persian king, Darius, could not do, save this righteous man, Daniel. 
If this sort of sounds like Pilate in the New Testament attempting to wash his hands of Jesus' unjust punishment, I think it's supposed to. I think there is a ring there. Daniel had blameless character through all of this. He lived for God in the private spots of his life. He had no double standard. Daniel was tested and found blameless before God, and secondarily, also blameless before his earthly supervisor, Darius. Daniel's original assessment of Daniel had been spot on after all. Daniel would keep him from suffering any loss. Daniel deserved his promotion. Distinguished Daniel prospered for a reason. Rulers sensed and saw the blamelessness and wisdom in him. If they spy on you as a Christian, I wonder, what will they discover? What needs to be routinely done in your life to follow a good spiritual example? And what sin, perhaps in your private life, needs to be offloaded this very day? Sin is kind of like, as one commentator said, having a lion in your living room. It'll eventually become violent. It'll eventually devour you. It's interesting the way the New Testament talks about lions. It likens lions in one sense toward the work of Satan, 1 Peter chapter 5. That Satan roams around prowling like a lion sinking, seeking whom he may devour. In that sense, we want to humble ourselves, put aside sin, not live as if we know more than God does about what is good for us. Right? Following his way, listening. We shouldn't think that every mentioning of lying in the Bible is associated with Satan, though, right? The Messiah Revelation affirms is known as the what of Judah. And the lion, in an odd kind of plot twist in and of itself, is described using a sort of proper noun, not just with the four-letter word lion, but with a different four-letter word that starts with an L. Do you know what it is? L-A-M-B, lamb. So in so many ways, Daniel is thought of conceptually in the storyline of the Bible, in the truths of the Bible, resounding again and again to tell us that God is Lord of the lion's and one day he will make the lion lie down with the lamb. Daniel seems to know this. Daniel has a blameless character. Not a perfect character, but a character that does not have known unrepentant sin in the closet. And I hope today that Daniel's life can be an example to us spiritually, because I believe it's meant to be. Will Rogers Half our life is spent trying to find something to do with the time we have rushed through life trying to save. Only as Will Rogers could say it, so I'll say it again. Half our life is spent trying to find something to do with the time we have rushed through our life trying to save. Uh, you spend the first half of your life you know, trying to get enough assets put together to enjoy your life, and the second half of your life trying to get the health back that you gave up trying to get the assets to enjoy life. Life is just this big hamster wheel, unless it isn't. I mean, unless it isn't, right? I mean, we can laugh at ourselves. I'm right in the middle of this thing, so the joke's on me on both sides. But the reality is, it doesn't, it's not like that following the spiritual example of Daniel now, is it? Because as we follow the spiritual example of Daniel, whether he was a very young man, a very old man, or somewhere in between, he did not look 
to the governing authorities of our day for his validation, of his day rather, for his validation, or for his ultimate destination, always had a principle underneath, guiding him to be blameless indeed before kings that were at all reasonable, but blameless first and foremost before God. So let's talk about that God for just a little bit. Our third point today is that divine jealousy is God caring for his people. So we've talked about bad jealousy. We've talked about a spiritual example. Let's look at good jealousy, divine jealousy. It may surprise you. In fact, I kind of stated some agreement and disagreement amongst those that are thinking, attempting to think Christianly about jealousy from the onset of this sermon. But there is such a thing as divine jealousy. The original listeners would have known the first five books of the Bible, those that were listening to Daniel and hearing the story told. They would have known that God is jealous for his people. Exodus makes this very clear in the giving of the law. He expresses his love for us in not leaving us to idolatry. He rescues us from threats, not just outside, but inside as well. Divine jealousy is seen in what God puts in Daniel and leaves for Daniel and does for Daniel. So look at this, what God puts in Daniel. Daniel puts, verse 3 says, an excellent spirit. God puts an excellent spirit, rather, in Daniel. Look at verse 3 of Daniel chapter 6 to kind of tie this together in your mind. It says, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. Well, who put that excellent spirit in him? I believe God did. It says, look at chapter 6, verse 23, to span the other side of the narrative. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found in him because he had trusted in his God. Trusted in his God. He trusted in the one true God. Who put this trust in him? The Bible says in Jonah 2 9 that salvation belongs to the Lord. I wonder, are you turning to him? Do you know him? Are you learning to lean on the Lord? Are you learning to trust him? The Bible teaches that the Spirit regenerates every believer before they express that belief publicly. If you are at work for God, it is because God was first at work in you. If you love God, it is because God first loved you. God's work in Daniel produces Daniel's work for God. Differently, you won't have the energy to follow Daniel in spiritual things unless God puts the Spirit and trust in you. The world may notice it, but they cannot fabricate it. So I call you today to only trust Him. Some trust in chariots, this altar says. Some trust in horses, warplanes, governing authorities, militaries, business leaders. But no, the scripture says, and I plead with you to trust in the Lord your God. Make him your God. All of us have failed in this. Every one of us has turned our own way, right? Who among us has perfectly made him our God? We all deserve eternal judgment by God because of this rebellion. Separation from God is what we deserve because of the breach of trust. The way that we've acted in covetousness instead of in covenant keeping. But the scripture says that God's free gift to you is eternal life through Christ Jesus the Lord. That's the fuller revelation. 
Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Believe His price paid for you is for you and confess Him as Savior and Lord. If you're new to this, today's membership class is a great place for you to begin to express the Lord dealing with you in these things and have a conversation with elders of our church that will help you get going in living this faith that God's put in you. Even if you didn't plan to come back for that or to even stay for that, we hope that you'll come at 2 o'clock down the hall and be a part of the class. We welcome you and know that the Lord will help you even as we have our conversations around Scripture and around what it means to be in covenant with the Lord. You know, God shows His divine jealousy for Daniel in a way that He shows it for us. He leaves us revelation. He leaves us Scripture. We need only study it and interpret it and apply it. I think that's what's going on with Daniel, as I said earlier, when we consider 1 Kings 8, 46-50. We find that Daniel is actually praying in a manner consistent with the known Scripture and revelation of the time. Just, I'll just read a couple of verses. 1 Kings says, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. That's actually read the whole thing because it's so helpful, but I just zero in on 1 Kings 8, 48, praying toward their land. Daniel, insofar as he understands Revelation, is interacting with the commands. That's what we ought to do, too. Divine jealousy not only puts faith in God's people, but gives us revelation to guide God's people. This is not just what he puts in Daniel or in us and leaves for us, but it's what he does for us also. It's what he does for us. He does something for Daniel here, but we need to put it in context. It's very, very important that we put it in context because God's divine jealousy actually does something for Daniel that he will do for us as well it may not be the exact same result at the exact same time. Let's think about that attitude I talked about earlier from Daniel chapter 3. You might remember in Daniel chapter 3 how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were essentially convicted to die. They were going to be thrown into the furnace. And remember I mentioned earlier, the text mentions that they do not demand that God delivers them from the furnace. In fact, they're perfectly content that they may die in the furnace. Now, they don't die. They're sort of a, a Christological type appearance, and they wind up being saved, and it's a great witness and testimony and so on, but, but they don't know that on the front end. And Daniel doesn't know that on the front end either. He doesn't know they did any more than his friends knew that they would survive a death sentence. He doesn't know that he will survive a death sentence. Some commentators say that this is trial by ordeal, kind of like throwing someone in the river that's guilty, but wondering if they might survive it because they really weren't guilty. It's trial by ordeal. They throw Daniel in the lion's den, trial by ordeal, and see if he survives it. Maybe he somehow survives it. It might explain why the king isn't just, isn't just going to sleep at night. 
there's a sense in which, well, maybe Daniel's righteous Daniel, is, he, he, maybe he'll survive this somehow or another. Maybe the lion's mouths will be shut. And in fact, they were. And all glory is given to God. But thinking about what God does for his people is in his divine jealousy for his people, he cares for us. And I'll give you a couple of examples in the way in which he cares for us may not exactly comport with the immediate outcome that Daniel experienced in being delivered from uh, the lion's den. Think about the early Christians. Uh, Stephen was martyred. Remember, he's praying for his persecutors as they're martyring him, Acts chapter 7. Remember, the apostle Paul was formerly known as Saul, and he's holding the cloaks of, the, of those that would martyr Stephen during the death. Acts 8 talks about it. And then in Acts chapter 9, when the Lord gets a hold of Paul, in his conversion, there's a scripture there in Acts 9, 4, and 5 that articulates Jesus saying to Paul, Paul, why is it that you persecute me? Now, Jesus was not directly being persecuted at that point. Who's being persecuted? His people. But he's so wrapped up with his people on the authority of Acts chapter 9 that a persecution against his people is part and parcel for a persecution against him. He cares for you in such a way that when there's a move against God's church, the people, he takes it very personally. Now, many of those Christians were, were martyred. Some of them survived. I don't know the splits on it. I don't know how many of which. In Daniel, we have survival of Daniel and his friends. Recorded, we don't know ultimately exactly how they die. They're not still walking the earth. Died, they met the Lord. But I think maybe the most poignant example, an example that I will conclude with, how God cares for you with a divine jealousy regardless of the circumstances and even the outcomes of your trial by fire, I think it's probably said best by Ian Duguid. And he picks up on this theme, and I'm just going to read a quote from him. I think it'll be out of fine to you. Listen to this quote. He said, This train of thought points us to the way in which Jesus fulfilled Daniel 6. Like Daniel, Jesus was falsely accused by his enemies and brought before a ruler, Pontius Pilate, who sought unsuccessfully to deliver him from his fate before handing him over to a violent death. Like Daniel, Jesus was condemned to die and his body was placed into a sealed pit so that his situation could not be changed by human intervention. Jesus's trial went even deeper down into death itself. Although Jesus was innocent, he suffered the fate of the guilty ones. There was no angel to comfort him with the presence of God in his pit. On the contrary, he was left in the blackness, utterly alone and abandoned by God, suffering the fate that we, the guilty ones, deserve. His body was left entombed in the icy grip of death for three days before the angel finally came to roll away his stone. Yet Jesus' experience was itself a foreshadowing of the final judgment, a declaration ahead of time of the verdict of the heavenly tribunal. Jesus died for our sins, not his own, and so death had no ultimate power over Jesus. And this is why we take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. We say things like, He who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus was a truly innocent man in a more thorough and complete way than Daniel because Daniel was not innocent of all sin. Jesus, to state his story in the parallel strikingly, did not remain in the grip of the tomb. God raised him from the dead precisely because the heavenly courtroom found him not guilty. 
What is more, when Jesus emerged alive from the tomb at daybreak on that first Easter Sunday, he brought with him God's stamp of acquittal not only on himself, but on all those who are joined to him by faith. When Daniel came forth from the lion's den, he came out all by himself. No one else was saved by God's deliverance of Daniel. But when Jesus came forth from the tomb, he came out as the head of a mighty company of people who have been redeemed from the pit through his death. Through his death. Whoever believes in Jesus will receive the same verdict from the heavenly court as he did, for his righteousness is counted as theirs. Because of the work of Christ on behalf of his people, the divine judge says, not guilty, you may go free. And now you can find favor, too, with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.